We have heard from Habakkuk, Habakkuk, or if you're Scottish, Habakkuk. We don't know how to say his name. So however you say it, say it confidently, and I'll probably say it, as I said last week, probably two or three different ways tonight. We're going to work our way through this passage, and God has an interesting message for us, and I trust for you in the process. When Bruce prayed tonight, he prayed for a a young girl who's two years old, whose name is two days, sorry, two days old, um, Lucy Rose. Lucy was born on Friday night to uh, a couple who comes to our, um, uh, they don't come to our church, but their um, parents do. So it's her her grandparents come to our church, Kevin and Gay. They come to the 8.30 service. And their daughter, Rose Lee, is married to a guy called Stuart. She's in, I think, her early 40s, and uh, they didn't think they would have any children. And then she's fallen pregnant, and now she's given birth, which is exciting, on Friday night to beautiful little Rosie, uh, Lucy Rose. And then just today, this morning, she just suddenly started turning blue. And then that stopped, and then she came back to normal, and then she turned red, and then that stopped. And so they took her, rushed her to the Motor Hospital, and they're doing tests today, and... I haven't had an update uh, yet, so I assume that means we haven't found out exactly what the cause is, but we've been praying that God would be merciful and God would intervene and restore her to full health. So that's what that prayer was about, and um, I would encourage you too, please, to pray for her and for Rose Lee and Stuart, that's the mum and the dad. Um, And this is Kevin and Gay's second grandchild, and uh, likely because of the age of their children, likely to be... Uh, the last opportunity for them to have a grandchild. Uh, It's one of those sad things that does happen in our fallen world and this passage tonight also talks about many other things that happen in our fallen world. If you're here tonight it's because God wants you here and because he's got something to say to you. So I'm going to pray and I invite you to listen to what God might say to you tonight so that he might fulfill his purposes not only in your life but in the life of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father we thank you that we can come together We're also grateful, Lord, that you are the God who is in control. Uh, Bad things and awful things happen in this world. And it's not because that's what you want, but it's because we live in a fallen world. Uh, That because of our own human rebellion, things now go wrong. And Lord, the tragedies of that is that we see beautiful little innocents children exposed to harm. We are grateful for Lucy's birth and we are very anxious, Lord, and desirous that you might intervene and place your healing hand on her. You are capable of doing anything. And so, Lord, we desire, our petition is that you would be gracious and merciful, you would be kind to Rosalie and Stuart, that you would restore little Lucy to full health, give the doctors and the examinations and all that they're doing uh, discernment and insight. And Lord, we ask this because Jesus is Lord. We likewise pray for ourselves, that in the midst of whatever is going on in our lives, we find ourselves here tonight to listen to your word. This is a privilege and we thank you for it. And we ask, Lord, that you might speak to us through this very ancient document, this very old book of Habakkuk, and that your words to him, and therefore through him to us, might have a response which is appropriate. Lord, Help us to know you and to trust you. So speak to us tonight, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Habakkuk is a guy who's a very honest prophet. He's an unusual prophet in that he asks a lot of questions and the book records far more dialogue about him with God than God's dialogue through him to his people. It's God's dialogue to him. And then God says to him in this very passage, chapter 2, I want you to write that down. Habakkuk has been observing the people of Israel, his people. And he's become a bit frustrated. He's become a bit annoyed. He's become a bit out of sorts. Because God's people were not doing what they should and they were doing what they shouldn't. Ring any bells? So in chapter 1, way back in verses 2 and 4, this is what we did last week, he goes to God and he says, God, why is this happening? Why is the world the way it is? What are you going to do about it? And when are you going to do that? That's his question. He does the right thing. He goes to God. And God responds to him, not in a way that he expected or eventually would like. God says, well... I'm going to use these guys called the Babylonians. They're ruthless, they're mean, they're cruel, and they've been wanting to crush you for many years, and now I'm going to let them. Habakkuk says, well, I don't like that plan. Imagine you lived in a suburb or a place where the community was changing, where bad people, inverted commas, were moving in, and the tone of the place, you know, break-ins into houses was going up and drugs were now being sold and guys on, you know, belonging to bikey gangs or, or whatever else you want to add to the scenario. The community has sort of taken a dive. And so out of concern and out of issues, you go to the police and you say, how can you guys help? And they said, it's okay, we've got a plan. Our plan is we're going to bomb the whole suburb and get rid of all the riffraff. And you go, well, I don't really like that plan because that's where I live. Well, that's Habakkuk's experience with God. God's going to send the Babylonians who are much worse than the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came, they took away 10 out of the 10 tribes. They disappeared. They were counted off and scattered around the globe. And now God says he's going to use somebody far worse, which just makes Habakkuk ask other questions. And so he jumps into that in the end of uh, the second half of chapter 1. He goes back to God. Not to accuse and not to blame, but because he's got questions. Can you give me some help? Can you give me some directions? Because he come from the perspective, and maybe you do, because certainly many people do. God, we belong to you. We follow you. We are your people. And if we are your people, then bad things are not supposed to happen to us. You're supposed to protect us. And the reality is, we are not immune even though we know God, love God, and have received forgiveness through Jesus, if that's true for you, that we are not immune from sin's consequences. If we sin, if we do things that are wrong, there are consequences. And knowing Jesus does not necessarily deliver us from those things. We do not have a sin penalty immunity option. If we sin, whether we are followers of, God's, of God, of the Lord Jesus, or not, there are consequences. God forgives us. And he often does not choose to remove the consequences of our sin. He can, and sometimes he does. But most often he doesn't choose to. So don't mess with sin. Don't be flaunting it. Don't think that you'll get away with it. And it's easy to illustrate. Let me try and illustrate it for you. Imagine you committed some sort of a crime, whatever it is, and you end up having to do jail time. And if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, when you did the crime, you go to jail and now you're in jail for a period of time. And in jail, you 
uh, hear the gospel and you become a follower of the Lord Jesus. What do you think? The person says, okay, you go to the, the warden and you say, I've now discovered Jesus. He's forgiven me for all of my sin, including the crime that I committed. So now you have to let me out of jail because I want to go evangelize for Jesus. And the warden will say, no, you did the crime. You still have to serve the time. That's the way it is. Sin has consequences. That's what God is saying through Habakkuk to his people. Second question he has, Habakkuk has, is, well, then how can God use wicked people, especially when they're worse than what we are? God's answer to that is, uh, your evaluation of people is off. You see, we compare ourselves with one another and we always end up being better ourselves than somebody else. I haven't used this illustration for a long time, but imagine you're driving down the road. Who owns the lane that you are driving in? You do. Don't you? I do. And if they cut in to my lane, then they have sinned, haven't they? That's an attitude that we can take with us into many dimensions of life, that we see life from our perspective because we compare ourselves to others. And what we have to do is compare ourselves to Jesus because when we compare ourselves to others, we tend to come off pretty good. They come off bad. There are two sorts of people in the world, good people and bad people. Which one are you? Oh, well, I'm a good person. And the others are the bad person. Who gets to wear the white hat? I do. Who gets to wear the black hat? They do. If I ruled the world, if I had it my way, then things would be very different. It's not my fault. That's what sin has done to us. It's distorted our world. Instead of being God-centered, we've now become self-centered, self-focused. We see the world through our perspective. And so when bad things happen, we look to blame. That's what Habakkuk was doing. And God says to him, basically, there aren't good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys and there are really bad guys. There are only bad people we are all sinners we're all deserving of God's just judgment that's what God says to him there are no good guys there's just bad guys really bad guys and me says God or in our terminology we would understand Jesus so Habakkuk's question to God is well how long is this going to go on for God when are you going to intervene chapter 1 verse 17 and he Ask God the questions. He doesn't accuse God, which is the right thing to do. And then he says, quite appropriately and submissively, at the, end of, at the beginning of chapter 2, our chapter for tonight, I'm going to stand on my watch. I'm going to station myself on the ramparts. I'm going to take myself up to the tower on the walls of Jerusalem. And I'm going to watch. I'm going to observe. And I'm going to wait and listen. Lord, what are you going to say to me? What's your answer? And so then I'll know how to answer those people who are asking me these sorts of questions. What can I say to them? And it's interesting, God says to him, chapter 2, verse 2, there's no good sitting here and waiting because the judgment's coming, but the time is not immediate. So what I want you to do, Habakkuk, verse 2, I want you to write down what I am about to say. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that when people read it, they will understand it and they will be able to pass it on. And the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not be false, nor will it linger. Wait for it 
for it will certainly come and it will not delay. God's answer is pretty clear. I want you to write it down. And that's what God has done for us. That's how we get the message of Habakkuk. That's how we get our Bible. Uh, that God has spoken truth throughout the centuries and he's directed certain people, write it down. Make it clear. And it's not just for you, but it's for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. That's why God has given us his word, the Bible. It's called Revelation. Without God's revelation, the Bible, we would be left with speculation. We'd be trying to work out things, trying to put two and two together. And that's what people do who don't read the Bible, who don't follow Jesus. They listen to psychology and they listen to science and they listen to statistics and they listen to observations and surveys and, and they try to dot the pieces, the points together and they try to make sense of the world and, and sometimes they go pretty close. They make some good insights. But at the end of the day, it's speculation. To get the really good answers and the big answers to life, we need to go to the scriptures. And here is a point for us. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, when God tells us what he is going to do, he does it so that we can tell people to get ready. Not so that we can sit around and see and if and when he does it. When God tells us a truth, he tells us that truth so that we can tell people to get ready. That's why he has told us the gospel. So that we can experience it, but so that we in turn can tell others. He has told us his plan. In chapter 2 of Habakkuk, outlines God's plan pretty carefully. Verse 3 reminds us, says, judgment is coming. There is an appointed time. For Habakkuk, that means there is a judgment coming for the Babylonians. For us, it means there is a judgment coming for the world. There is an appointed time. It will not delay. It'll come at its own appointed time, but it's not immediate. Why does God do that? Why does God tell us there's judgment coming, but it's not now? Why does God wait well the bible's very clear the bible says to us consistently that god announces judgment and he always waits patiently so that people will have a chance to change so that people will have a chance to repent that's what he does with jonah that's what irritated jonah god said to jonah i want you to go to nineveh that really wicked city that previous kingdom the assyrians really bad people i want you to go to nineveh and i want you to tell them in 40 days i'm going to destroy them judgment is coming and jonah said no i don't want to tell them because jonah knew what god was like you want me to tell them that in 40 days if they don't repent judgment is coming and you're only telling them because you want them to repent and when they repent you'll forgive them you'll have mercy on them I don't want you to have mercy on them. So no, I'm not telling them. I wonder if sometimes we're a bit like that. I wonder if sometimes we draw back and we don't tell people that God has a plan and intention for them and wants to forgive them because we really want God to punish them. That they have hurt or offended us. Peter says same thing. God's delay is in order to give people time the lord is not slow keeping his promise peter says as some understand slowness he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance we know the end we know what's coming god has told us it hasn't happened yet but it will 
And you're here tonight because he wants you to know that, that there is a judgment day. There is a day of accounting. And he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 4, that in this day of accounting, there are going to be two groups of people. On the one hand, there is a group of people who are called the proud. And on the other hand, there is a group of people called the righteous or the trusting ones. Verse 4 says, so... Uh, See, he is puffed up. This is Babylon. He is puffed up. His desire is not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. The Babylonians are proud and trust in themselves. They are self-focused, self-interested, self-made, and very successful. They will be a rising, conquering, powerful nation, incredibly wealthy, to the point where they were probably one of the most wealthiest nations that have ever existed in human history. Read the book of Daniel. So it's exactly that sort of, gives that sort of image. But, God says, because of their pride, there is judgment day coming. They will be held to account. This chapter outlines it for us. But on the other hand, there are those who are right with God. How do they survive? By faith, by trusting God to work his purposes out. So Habakkuk, in the midst of these bad things happening, in the midst of me working out my judgments in the world, You need to hang on to me. You need to trust me through the process. So too for us, with whatever is going on in your life, God invites you to trust him to work out his purposes to good ends. Before I move on, let me just pause a little bit over verse 4 about this idea of the Babylonians being proud and puffed up, about wanting to live life their own way of... Uh, excluding God. The reality is, I think the Bible indicates and life indicates that pride does not satisfy, that people who follow this path live on very short terms of satisfaction. We are always driven by more. We want the best. We want the latest. We want the updated. We want the latest TV. We want and new relationships. That's why relationships are often falling apart in our world and culture, because they want something new. Marriages fall apart. It's not just husbands, but it's often husbands who come home and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of the marriage. I want out. I've known several instances of uh, Christian marriages where the guy has come home and said to a Christian wife, married two or three years, and he says, I don't want to be married anymore. And I have always said to the girl, what's her name? And she says, no, 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 there is nobody else. But then two weeks, three weeks, a couple of months later, you find out there is somebody else. This is what pride does to us when we choose to live our lives excluding God and his standards, when self is at the center, when we want to be happy. And so we make choices to do it our way. It's exactly what the Babylonians were doing. But the reality is the best things in life are not things. If you want peace, contentment, satisfaction, deep inner calmness in your life, the only way that I know you can get that is by a a relationship with the Lord Jesus. There is no other way. Nothing else satisfies. It's like God has made us, and at the center of our very soul, heart, being, the heart, at the very center of us, he has made a room for himself. And when we exclude God from that point, when we put God on the edge of our life, or when we put God out of our life, this doesn't remain empty but other things come in to fill it up. And we try to find deep inner satisfaction through things. 
whether it's sex or alcohol or drugs or relationships or movies or hobbies or possessions or whatever it is. We all have different things that we try to fill that up, but nothing works because it wasn't made for things. This deep inner core of us is made for God and he is the only one who can bring deep, lasting satisfaction to us. We want more and more. And God says, it's not stuff you need, it's me that you need. That's what he's saying to the Babylonians. This message was to go to them. They had made all sorts of choices, wrong choices. And God was incredibly patient with them because he wanted them to find a way out. And the way out is told to us in verse 4. The just, the righteous will live by faith, by knowing God and trusting God through the process. Well, the Babylonians didn't listen. And in historical terms, the Babylonians no longer exist. But Bible prophecy says the city of Babylon will be rebuilt towards the end times and that they will become a powerful, again, empire on the world. But at this point in human history, Babylon is gone. So we're reading about a time that is about to lead forth to their incredible judgment. And in this chapter, God gives five woes. When God says, woe, it's bad. Jesus said, woe. In fact, he said, woe, just about as many times as he said, blessed. But every time he said, woe, things happen, bad things happen. The Lord Jesus said to the towns, four towns living around the Sea of Galilee, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Capernaum. But he never said woe to Tiberias. And if you go to Galilee today, then I am told you'll need to stay in the town of Tiberias because Capernaum, Bethsaida and Chorazin are gone. When God says woe, it means judgment's coming. And God clearly in this chapter outlines, names the sin and the consequences. Here are the five woes. The first one is in verse 6. God says, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods, makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up, make you tremble? And then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations... The peoples who are left will plunder you. Because you have shed men's blood, you have, uh, and for you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. God says, woe to the people of Babylon because you have stolen goods and you've made wealth by extortion. It's not wrong to be rich. It just depends how you become rich. It's not wrong to be poor either. The point is not whether you're rich or poor. The point is whether you are righteous or unrighteous, whether you are following God's ways or rejecting God and living your way. Hence the judgment. That's the point of this woe. The second woe is in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. He says, Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, sets his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and fortifying your life, forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. You are builders of unjust gain. You have acted inappropriately. You've gotten rich by sinful ways. You haven't done it in your own backyard. You've done it in other locations. You've gone and you've 
pillaged and um, ruined the environment and you've done all sorts of things over there in order to make wealth, but you're not going to live over there because you've ruined that place. You're going to live over here and build your mansions. And then God says, on the day of trial, on the day of judgment, there is a trial coming. God will take the house beams out of the mansions you have built and he'll take the bricks out of the gated walls that you have built and he'll use them as witnesses against you. Incredible. God will take the very things that we possess and on the last day, hold them as evidence against us in terms of our faithfulness. Don't mess with God. He will call us to account as he does the Babylonians. The third woe, there are five of them. The third woe, verse 12. Woe to the one who builds a city with bloodshed, establishes a, a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Bloodshed, murder. Uh, building a, an empire or a town or a city on crime or on sin. We see it reflected in our culture and in our society. We have casinos and prostitution and gambling and the governments and the local councils uh, don't outlaw it. They don't say they're wrong. Rather, they use those as a means of raising revenue, having taxes, lotto and raffles and poker machines and legalised state gambling. Justifying that which is wrong for their own means and purposes. Babylon did exactly that. And God says it's just going to be fuel for the fire. You're going to be judged. The fourth woe, verse 15. I'll come back to verse 14. God says, Woe to him who drinks to his neighbours, pouring it out from the wineskin to lay a drunk, so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. There is a relationship between getting drunk, too much alcohol, and nakedness. They are still linked in our society. And God is saying, just as the Babylonians did it deliberately, so God will call to them account. Verse 16, I'll give you something to drink. It'll be the cup of my own wrath, God says. I will humiliate you as you humiliate others. You've mocked them, I will mock you. Don't get me wrong. And don't get the scriptures wrong. It doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. That's not the issue. It's getting drunk. And it's using alcohol to manipulate and to embarrass other people. That's the sin. Verse 17, another part of their abuse was not just alcohol and the human body, but it was also violence to the environment. The Greenies aren't totally incorrect. Verse 17 says, The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. What was the violence done to Lebanon? Lebanon was renowned for its tall trees and its magnificent forests. And Babylon had come in and with their policy of a, a raised earth, a burnt earth, scorched earth policy, they just lowered everything. They destroyed it. And God says, you ruined my beautiful creation and I will call you to account. Is it wrong to chop down a tree? No. But there has to be a respect for God's creation. He even goes on to talk about animals. Your destruction of animals will terrify you. Killing animals is not a sin. Who was the first person to kill an animal in the Bible? God. But killing animals when there is no need, simply to be cruel, or to neglect a pet, is a sin. Your violence against animals, your destruction of animals, will terrify you. You're part of God, they're part of God's creation. And the Creator will hold them to account, just as He will us. 
As I said, the environmentalists are not totally wrong. They are wrong, though, that they've made the environment their God. They've turned the creation into their object of worship. But we still need to be good stewards of God's creation. God cares about the sparrows, and he cares about fat cats, and he cares about lazy dogs, and he cares about horse racing and the abuse that goes on there. I take it by faith that God does care about fat cats. I'm not sure that he made them. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 18, the fifth one. And this all starts with pride, back in, chap- in verse 4. And pride always leads to this, idolatry. They're linked. Because pride is me-centred. And idolatry is me doing what I want to do. And so God says, woe to those who have, well, in verse 18, he introduced, of what value is an idol? It's man-made, it's carved it. Uh, what does an image teach except lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation, and the idols can't speak. Verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can't it give guidance, and yet it's covered with silver and gold, and there is no breath in it. God is opposed to idolatry. Well, we don't do that. We don't do that in Western culture. We Aussies don't go around making little carved images and putting it on a mantelpiece and bowing down before it. Other cultures do, and other people within our culture now do it. You may visit some homes or some shops where they have little shrines and little gods, and, and they're very serious about it. And we look at that and we think how strange and how sad and how wrong and, but we have idols our idols are not little carved gods though we all worship something our idols could be our sports team or our rock band or our hobby it could be our experiences our relationships it could be anything anything that takes the center and the focus of our life anything that we are devoted to supporting and making it a priority in life, particularly to the neglect of our spiritual relationship with God. What we need to be aware of as followers of God is instead of putting God at the centre of our life, where he permeates every aspect of our life, is that we don't have him at the centre, we just have him as part of our life. And there's all these other things that are part of our life as well. And God is just a part of it. That's not what he wants. He wants to be centre. He wants to be part of every aspect and dimension of our life. The Lord says, my people and all people are bent and crooked and going in the wrong direction. They chase everything except me. And yet I'm the only one who can do anything about it. We need God. And we need God at the centre. That's what the Lord is saying to us through Habakkuk. In verse 14 that I jumped over, The motivation God's plan is for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's plan. He wants the whole world to know about him. That's why he's told us, so that we are part of that and we can go and tell people. But we get distracted by our idols. We want more stuff. God says, I want you to leave your stuff and I want you to come join me in my mission. Multitudes don't know him. Multitudes who live around us don't know him. And God is calling us to be faithful. One way of doing that is, as we've heard tonight, is to take some of those leaflets for the carols and to invite people to the carols where they can hear the gospel 
and sing gospel songs. That's one way. God wants us to be zealously prioritizing in our relationships to have these gospel conversations. God wants the whole world to know about him. It's not about us. It's about him. And so that's why we exist. So the gospel will go out to people. God concludes his response to Habakkuk's question by verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple in heaven. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's like God is saying to Habakkuk, I've answered your question. I've told you my plan. I deal with all people and I'll deal with the Babylonians just as I will deal with my people. I deal with sin. I will discipline you for your sin and I will punish them for their sin. There is coming a day when that will happen. I've answered your questions. Don't argue with me. Just trust me. There's nothing more to say. And so God calls us to that sort of response, to place our faith and trust in him, that he is working his purposes out. He invites us to be silent, not to argue and to disagree, but to ponder who he is and what his plan is, that one day Jesus will return and that he will separate people into two groups, believers and unbelievers, and call to account. In silence, we ought to consider the destiny of all those around us, of those who do not believe of what they are facing in eternity. We ought to be silent and ask God to expose our pride or our idolatry or our sin of what is it that's messing up our lives and make sure that he is at the centre. Because the only hope for change is Jesus. We can't change ourselves. We need him to be in our life and to invite him to do so. I'm going to ask him to do that now, and I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the hope of the world. You're the one who uh, speaks to the prophet Habakkuk, you're outlining your plan, is that you will deal with sin, that you are watching, you are aware of all things, Nothing escapes your notice. And Lord, even our sin, our pride, our idolatry doesn't escape your notice. Lord, we ask that you might forgive us for our sin, that you might cleanse us, and that you might take up residence at the very centre of our being, and that you and your will might influence and impact every dimension of our life. Help us, Lord, to do what you say in this part of your word, to trust you, to cooperate with you in spreading your knowledge to the ends of the earth and to be silent before you, waiting patiently for you to fill your purposes. Lord Jesus, come and live in us, reign in us and achieve your purposes through us. We pray in your name. Amen.